0: When you explore Great Britain, it's particularly rewarding to slow down and smell the roses. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today we're savoring the many and varied gardens of England with a Brit who knows them well. England's leading hobby is gardening, and as you travel there, it seems the entire country is caught up in a Britain in Bloom contest. I'm not usually one to get excited about horticulture, but in Britain, the gardens add a real sparkle to your travel experience. Coming up on today's show, a tour guide friend of mine based in the south of England introduces us to an amazing variety of tourable gardens. Your English garden experience can range from high tea in the Queen's backyard to a giant man-made ecosphere. Gardens, whether for herbs, medicines, poisons, or bouquets, have been an important part of the British scene since medieval times, and they remain a fascinating aspect of any American's visit. We're exploring English gardens and the aristocratic estates they decorate with Roy Nichols coming right up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're going gardening today. It's time to go gardening, and and when I think of gardening, I think of English gardens. England loves its gardens. I think it's considered the number one hobby in the United Kingdom. They say 40% of all English people actually consider themselves gardeners. So I've got my uh, friend, Roy Nichols, on the line. He takes tours of gardens in England, sharing his passion uh, for England with with me for years. And, uh, Roy, thanks for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure, Rick. Absolute
0: pleasure. Roy, are you a gardener, or are you just a tour guide that wants to get business Um, and takes people gardening?
1: they often conflict, to be honest, because to really look after a garden, you need to be there all the time. And, of course, being away so much um, on tours and things tends to uh, means the garden suffers. But, yes, I am a gardener. I love gardening. It's a great pleasure. It's a great way of relaxing.
0: So you can enjoy gardening uh, uh, in your sightseeing, really?
1: Um, yeah, well, you get ideas. Um, whether you're going around huge gardens or you're going around little cottage gardens, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it gives you ideas and little insights and things like that. So it's a life way of doing it.
0: Now, you know, there's lots of different gardens and you'll see these fancy gardens in France and so on, but what what characterizes an English garden?
1: Um oh, you've got the very large formal gardens and the famous classical gardens, places like Sissinghurst and Stourhead, all those. But to me what epitomizes um English British gardening really is the sort of um the domestic cottage garden I would think, with all the very traditional cottage flowers, um roses, all of those sort of things. That, to me, is really what English garden is about. Not gardening on such a large scale.
0: Yeah, you know the you know garden... Can you picture the garden outside of Anne Hathaway's cottage? In I Street? do,
1: yes. That's a very good typical example, yeah.
0: I love that, and I, I'm not even that tuned into gardens. But, man, when I walk up to Anne Hathaway's cottage, uh, where Shakespeare used to walk when he was courting her, I guess, right, you've got this rough celebration of flowers uh, there, and would that be your classic sort of quintessential English garden?
1: It is. I mean, it's not the demand or the drive for formality too much. I mean, that often came in later period. But remember, gardens started with a with a purpose that um, all a lot of the, the plants and flowers, the herbs, were grown for culinary use or for herbal use. Um, and, and so it grew together. And there's a sympathy about it. I think it's delightful English gardens. And the, the thing that um, anybody coming to Britain, coming to England, really needs to know about is the National Garden Scheme. At certain times throughout the year, gardens within a village or a little town will all open to the public, and the money collected for it goes to charity. So you get to see private gardens that aren't normally open over one day a year.
0: Wow, so these are wealthy people who have... uh,
1: No, no, they don't need to be wealthy people. It's just anybody. anybody, Um, So
0: the gardens are everybody... It's an open house for gardens.
1: Literally, yeah. They'll they'll have it. It, 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 There's no sort of um, set time of the year. It's always going to be at the time when gardens are the best, of course, but it'll be in a particular village somewhere, and as part of the National Garden Scheme, it's a way of showing gardens and raising money for charity.
0: And is it a donation, or is there an admission fee?
1: Well, there's an admission fee. I mean, they class it as a donation. Mm. Usually, it's an admission fee. Sometimes, they're actually free. I've been to lots of villages where all the gardens will be free for the day.
0: And most of these gardens would be your English gardens?
1: Well, that, 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 I mean, it to is the, yeah, the quintessential English gardens, but there's going to be lots of variety in that and the interpretation, and some people have sure. particular things they like, but yes.
0: I've heard that an English garden works very hard to look like they're not working very hard at it. <laughs>
1: That's right. What does well, that well, mean? You, You're looking for an informality about it and a uh, casualness, no, nothing rigid about it, But as you say, to get that isn't always easy, and it requires a lot of work.
0: Let's talk just a little background on English gardens in general, and then we've got a lot of callers on our line here. I'm uh, Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with my friend Roy Nichols from England, and Roy is a guy who's put together garden tours of his beautiful country. Uh, Roy, you mentioned a lot of gardens go back to monastic times. I know there's gardens in, in Britain that are 500 years old. What are the monastic roots of gardens?
1: Well, um, as part of the ethos of being in the monastery, um, work was an essential part. Um, So they would either um, one aspect of it would be the farming of it, raising of sheep, raising of crops, but also within the garden, um, within the monastery, I should say, they raised uh, herbs and plants for medicinal reasons. Because often um, monasteries were the only sort of the closest thing to a hospital they might have, so they treated the sick, both people within the monastery. Uh, if it was an enclosed order, or if um, it wasn't an enclosed order for people from outside villages and people like that. And so they were growing herbs um, for remedies. And Mm -hmm. that's how many of them started.
0: And the monasteries were, you could say, little enclaves of civility in a a chaotic middle-aged world. And and they would have their tomatoes and their carrots. They'd have their uh, medicine, their painkillers, and their sedatives and so on. Is that right, herbal?
1: Well, well, tomatoes didn't come in until a little bit later. Monasteries had gone in Britain by that stage. But that's a little quibble. Um, Yes, they would be growing things, but it wasn't just in monasteries. Everybody in those days, virtually everybody, certainly if um, they lived in any semi-rural area, grew things for the table. They knew uh, natural remedies.
0: That was the pharmacy, really?
1: It was, yeah. That was the only recourse to to, uh, medicine that they had.
0: Tell me about poison
1: and oh well there's some famous ones um well britain's got one of the most poisonous fungi in the world the destroying angel but they didn't grow those very often um but there's a lot of poisonous um, um plants that they used had medicinal purposes uh monk's hood was one that they uh, they grew in medieval times i can't remember the original purpose for oh, it monk's head monk's hood monk's hood yes it's it, it comes from i think it comes from the shape of the the flower that gives us it its title. Okay. But a lot of plants, you know, have a very borderline purpose, you know, uh, in too much. They can be poisonous.
0: They can be poisonous or medicinal. So uh, we have this monas- monastic roots. There's a practical reason to have gardens in England. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your formal gardens of the Renaissance. You've got your Tudor Knot garden. What's that?
1: Well, the Tudor Knot garden is, um, sort of, it, it's a sort of one sort of perspective on this. Um, The little knot gardens were usually little hedgerows planted with something like box, and they would be planted in a very formal style and then interplanted with flowers and herbs and things like that, Um, usually connected with gravel paths and things like this that people could promenade along.
0: And then the big palatial gardens you mentioned uh, Sissi, Sissing.
1: Well, Sissinghurst is later, but you you do have a lot of those formal gardens. I mean, there's, there's various aspects of it. And there was remember there was fashions in gardening. You had from the continent. You had the very formal, almost Italianate gardens of France and Italy. Um, um, and then later on in the 18th century you have the landscape gardens laid out by people like Capability Brown.
0: Yeah, we run across Capability Brown in our sightseeing a lot. He's sort of like your um, ultimate uh, uh, landscape architect, right?
1: Well, there was a fashion in the 18th century in England within Britain really for uh, idolized pastoral landscapes and they gardened on a huge scale. They moved thousands of tons of soil to create perfect vistas. They would plant, not... Flowers. They would plant trees. They would plant romantic ruins, um, just so that the the owners of these great estates, these great houses, would have these marvelous, rather perfect landscapes to look out in the morning.
0: Now, would would uh, Blenheim Palace be an example of that?
1: It is. Yeah, laid out in the eighteenth century.
0: But it's, it <laughs> seems this monumental. You've got trees that are designed just like we'd put flowers in our garden,
1: and, and also um, planting with an eye to the future, because they were planting trees knowing that they might not mature for 100, 150 years.
0: So
1: they're thinking really in the long term.
0: All right. We've got some people on the line asking about gardens, and we're going to go right to our callers. I'm talking with Roy Nichols from England, and we are talking about English gardens. Pat in Bellingham, Washington. Pat, thanks for your call.
2: Yes. Um, Actually, uh, I lead tours, uh, garden tours, myself in England. Uh, I travel a lot in Britain, and so I've traveled traveled gardens on my own, and then when, you know, people found out about it, asked me if I would put together garden tours, and that's how I got it going. But in doing so, since I traveled around Britain on my own, my husband and I, we found gardens that you don't see on garden tours. So it was kind of fun to present these gardens to people that, you know, so that they could see gardens that other people on garden tours uh, don't see.
0: How did you find out about those places?
2: Well, see, I'm over there all the time, and we have friends that live there in Wiltshire that we stay with a lot. And so we would we would find these places by us driving around in the areas where we would stay in Wiltshire a lot, and we would just accidentally come upon them. And so we... We tucked them in our pocket. As far as that, yeah. we're yeah. always going to go back because they were so special, and there were no big crowds, and they were all English and British people there, and it wasn't touristy. And awesome uh, gardens that uh, that we've
0: gotten to really love. That's a good tour guide to jump on those little serendipitous oh, that's moments. What
2: I, that's what I do, Pat. How did you
0: uh, incorporate London into your into your itinerary from a gardening mm. point of view?
2: Well, as far as gardening, well, you know, Kew. Uh, is awesome, and you can spend a whole day because it's, well, more than a day because it's so huge, so Q, I never miss. And uh, Wisley, because I'm a master gardener here in the Pacific Northwest, and, of course, our uh, our weather and Brit's weather are so close that we, you know, we go to Britain and we feel very much at home in the gardens. And Wisley is uh, the horticulture uh, garden over there, and they've got lots of new ideas and beautiful things. And, and Q this year had... Uh, you know the ga- glass blower. What's his name? Dale Chihuly. Yes, Chihuly. Right. And we were just, and we were just dumbfounded to find out Chihuly was there. And I was standing looking at a Chihuly uh, piece of art, and this lady said, "Have you ever heard of this man?" And I said, well, was "Actually, he's our neighbor." Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, hey, did, it was
0: great. <laughs> did, well, what was your take on the Chelsea Flower Show? Did you check that out?
2: Well, uh, yes, I've gone to it several times. It's just something that you don't want to miss.
0: Why, what, uh, what's the deal with the Chelsea? flowers show? Why why is that a big deal in London? Well,
2: because they've got a little bit of everything in that they've got beautiful gardens to see, you know, uh, display gardens that you can see all the new and uh, new latest things. And they've got art in the garden. So you see lots of art. And of course, there's lots of things for sale. All right. You see gardens, you see new flowers and new things that are brought up. And you see art, which is which is really neat and art that you can buy and take pictures of and and bring home with you and so and, and you know there's nothing like saying oh dear I was just at the Chelsea flower show
1: that's right it's it's one of the best garden shows in the world um the the Royal Horticultural Society and, and pat mentioned Wisley, which is their permanent gardens but then they have the flower show every year at Chelsea wow. and you have some of the great gardeners and they compete um there's various categories of um, of garden that they, they go for, um, innovations and all that sort of thing. It sounds um,
0: almost worth revolving an itinerary around. Is it just a certain uh, week or something?
1: Um, well, if, uh, if you remember the Royal Horticultural Society, there are days, it, it's usually over a week or 10 days, and they have a certain number of days there is the preserve of RHS members, Royal Horticultural Society members, um, and then they're open to the, the general public. And
0: generally what month is that?
1: It's May, May-June.
0: May. So anybody who could who could figure out this year's uh, Chelsea... Yeah, you, you can
1: get tickets from online, but there's quite, as you can imagine, there's quite a demand for tickets, so the sooner you can do it, the better.
0: Oh, it's actually hard to get in? It could sell out?
1: Oh, it does, yeah, because they restrict the number. Hundreds of thousands of people go every year, Whoa.
0: so there is quite a competition for tickets. Pat from Bellingham, thanks very much. You're very welcome. More in a moment with Roy Nichols and your calls as we sniff out the best of England's gardens on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. That's how you join in the action on Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking about English gardens with a man who knows them well, Roy Nichols. Uh, He's a tour guide who actually takes groups around Britain on garden tours, and we've got a lot of calls because Americans love those English gardens. Becky's calling us from Georgia. Hi, Becky.
3: Yes, I love to paint. And I want to take a trip to England, but I want to go at the peak color season. So when would that be? When would be the best time for me to go to get really good pictures that um, I can take and use in my painting?
1: Um, Hello, Becky. Uh, It depends on the color that you want. Um, I'm I'm thinking you're you're probably talking about sort of flowers and things like that. So you're really looking at late spring through early into middle summer. So you're looking at late May, June, into July. Late July and August, sometimes the colors tend to go out. Then you've got colors back again. Um, Also, in the early summer, you've also got the colors of the azaleas and rhododendrons and things. But I think you're really looking at May and June into July. The garden's really to be at the best.
0: And don't don't the gardens sort of plant whatever's going to be best during this month? Well, I
1: mean, the very best gardens try and give color all the way throughout the year. Um, and so they will have plants that give color every month of the year or even through into the autumn with, with um, uh, sort of bushes and things like that and autumn colors. Um, but they, if you're thinking of the sort of quintessential gardens with flowers and the roses and all those sort of things, the cottage gardens, they really are at the best in, in the early part of the summer.
0: All right, Becky, you got it there. Uh, May and June, is that right then?
1: Yes, that's, that's the time of the year that um, I always like to be traveling.
0: Thanks for your call, Becky.
3: Thank you very much.
0: We have another caller on the line, Michael, from Marion, Arkansas. Hi, Michael.
4: Yes, thank you for taking my phone call. I appreciate it.
0: Do you have any comments or questions for Roy?
4: Yes, I sure do. Roy, uh, my wife and I will take a six-day driving tour of uh, South England from Bath down to Land's Inn. Uh, What uh, gardens would you recommend in that part of England?
1: Um, It's still even by, I mean, you're going into probably one of the most temperate parts of, of Britain, Um, Spring always arrives earlier in places like Cornwall than anywhere else in the British Isles. Um, But you you can have choices. Um, I was thinking of the Eden Project. Now, this is not really an English garden. This was a project that started um, 10, 10, 15 years ago where they built these two huge geodesic domes to grow tropical plants and uh, semi-tropical plants. It's some of the largest domes in the world. I think one of them is big enough to take St. Paul's Cathedral. And they grow tropical plants. Um, And it might seem out of place in an English garden or an English countryside, but it it has to be one of your priorities when you're going down to Cornwall. Having said that, um, you'll be a lot of colour in in a lot of those gardens. I'm thinking of one of my little favourite gardens, is Treba Garden, T-R-E-B-A-H, which is down just into Cornwall. I think it's near St. Austell, just south of St. Austell. Again, they grow almost sort of um, semi tropical plants, but in the open air. And it's a beautiful, beautiful garden.
0: So you've got this South England uh, semi tropics. You've got these weather battered palm trees down there. English people love to think they've got some tropics on their south coast, right?
1: Well, um, I wouldn't call them weather battered. I mean, they grow very nicely. Thank you very much, Rick. <laughs>
0: okay. Michael, does that give you some ideas?
4: It sure does. Thank you, Roy, and thank you, Rick.
0: Thanks, Michael, and good thank luck you, on your travels. Roy, let's go back to that Eden project. E D E N. I understand two million visitors visit it every year. That's the number three attraction in all of the UK after the uh, the Eye, uh, the Big Ferris Wheel in London, and the London Tower. Um, this must be incredible to visit.
1: It, it is one of the most stupendous sights I've seen in Britain. I, I, its main purpose, uh, and it has to be reiterated, is not so much about just giving people a good place to see and these very nice plants. But it is actually developed because of the changes that you were mentioning in global warming and the changes in uh, the natural world around us and how we can learn and how we can adapt. And, of course, remember, there's various parts of the world. The um, plants are under uh, under pressure through changing weather climates and things. uh, And the project is about trying to find answers and preserve certain ecologies. Wow.
0: In my travels around Britain, I find so much interest in promoting sustainability and stewardship of the environment. And now here we have a scientific project that welcomes literally millions of visitors a year so they can learn more about how we can, I think, respect nature.
1: Plants as much as animals. We're often aware of um, animals being in danger, uh, the dwindling species and all of that. But we tend to forget there are more plants that actually go into extinction every year than there are animals. Um, And we just don't know what we're losing and what the project is doing as part of a worldwide project is to try and preserve some of these plants because we don't know when we'll need them. We don't know what properties they've got um, and what we might be able to learn from them in the future.
0: I think your own Prince Charles was recently in in Italy talking about that very subject, tastes that are becoming extinct because certain plants are just no longer available.
1: And, and, And of course, there's some of the discoveries in the medical world over the last 10 or 20 years of medicines and treatments that we've learned from plants that are just uh, just there, waiting to be discovered, and we don't know what we're losing. So um, it, it really is self-interest, as far as I'm concerned, sure. to promote places like this.
0: Now, one taste that's in no danger of uh, extinction is tea, the English tea. And to me, when I think of English gardens, I think of fancy English ladies sipping high tea in garden parties. Uh, is this something we can work into our garden sightseeing?
1: Oh yes, um and we've we've talked to all of, all the callers a lot of the callers have mentioned going to National Trust gardens or formal gardens and I can't think of one place uh, including the Eden Project that doesn't have a tea shop.
0: Now, can you get a formal tea like I mean not with tuxedos and stuff but an actual high tea or an afternoon tea in a traditional sense?
1: Um yes, I mean um any visitors going to places like the Cotswolds or the south of England or anywhere else for that matter We'll be able to get tea in the afternoons and, of course, traditionally served with scones. And um, in southern England, places like Devon and Cornwall, you can get the true clotted cream, which is the cream that is served with scones.
0: The true clotted, like in terms of arteries, cream?
1: Um, Well, in every sense of the word, in every sense of the word. Clotted cream, for those of you don't know, is um, cream that's, I think, the, the process, you take it right up to just below the boiling point and, it, and the, uh, it concentrates the, the butterfat, the cream. So it's like cream of cream.
0: Cream of I've had that, and you put it on your, on your scones, don't you? That's
1: right, with jam. Scones and or scones? It's not something you'd want to eat every day, but it is one of the most delightful things you can eat with a cup of
0: tea. I've got to say, it's one of my guilty little pleasures is to go to a, a beautiful manor house in the countryside, sit there overlooking the garden, and have my scone, and I slice it real thin, and I put on that clotted cream and some of that strawberry jam. It's quite oh, nice. It's-
1: is a treat I think everybody sees it that
0: way England has Uh, a lot of treats we have Claudia on the line in Dallas Texas hi Claudia
5: Thanks for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Well, this is such a passion of uh, our family. We had the wonderful opportunity uh, a couple of years ago of uh, being over in England and touring Leeds Castle when it was fully decorated with all of the flowers. I believe it was from the Royal Historic Society. And then um, venturing through the lavender fields out in Norfolk. And that truly started our love and our passion for English gardens. But we're going to have an opportunity to be in England again this May and we'd like to put together an itinerary of some of our must-see, some of those must-see top English gardens and manor houses that, in your opinion, we shouldn't miss. We've got about five days, and we want to pursue the gardens and glorious square footage. And what would you recommend?
0: Okay, wait a sec. Top five gardens in five days for the garden fanatic. In should we yes, say? Should we say? in
5: uh, glorious square footage.
0: What's glorious square footage?
5: Oh, just beautiful manor houses and
0: oh, I see. Whatever
5: you would recommend.
0: Okay, so that's ele- that's great. English elegance, inside and out. Roy, what would yes. you recommend?
1: Right in five days. Um, it, it, it's it's probably best not to try and do too much. Um, you'd be looking at one big property a day maybe another one um, in the afternoon or something. So for that reason, because you don't want to spend all your time travelling, I mean, there are beautiful gardens in Ireland, in, in Scotland, in Wales, right across England, but with five days, I, I'd be tempted to stay in the Cotswolds, southern England area so that you can concentrate on the, one of some of the, the famous gardens, uh, for instance, Hidcote in, in the Cotswolds. There are several of the big manor houses in that area, Um, that do have uh, Snows Hill's got a beautiful garden. That's another National Trust property. Um, I mentioned Montacute in the south of England in Somerset. Um, You could also do Wells and the Bishop's Palace Gardens there. Mm. Uh, You could do Longleat, which is one of the great uh, parkland areas, and you could also do Stourhead, which is another famous parkland garden owned by the National Trust.
0: Roy, would Blenheim make the cut?
1: Um, It's a beautiful house. It's a beautiful parkland. Um, and they have some very formal gardens. It's not, a, it's a beautiful house, a beautiful, a marvelous example of an 18th century house. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as gardens go, I'd be tempted to pick some of the other ones. Okay. But um, Claudia is saying that she wants to see beautiful countryside, and you can't do anything better than the Cotswolds Correct. and uh, southern England generally.
0: I was just in the Cotswolds, and I found a new lavender park, which was—lavender in, in, is so popular in France, mm. everybody thinks about Provence and lavender fields, but this one entrepreneurial farmer has just replanted his huge estate uh, with lavender. And if you go to the right time of the year, it's just like as far as you can see— lavender. And uh, he's got a charming little uh, tea house and souvenirs and everything. Have you, have you crossed that one yet, Roy? I,
1: I know exactly which one you I can't remember the name of the farm, but it's not too far from Snow's Hill it's itself. It's just before
0: it? Snow's Hill, yeah. You can't That's miss right, it. Yeah.
1: That's wonderful because we thoroughly
5: enjoyed the beautiful lavender fields uh, when we were in Norfolk.
0: Thanks for your call, Claudia.
5: Thank, Thank you, you very much.
0: Happy gardening. Roy, talk a bit about mazes, because these, it's an interesting sort of uh, English passion, it seems, for making mazes in their gardens.
1: Well, it, it was one of those things that really started, I suppose, in the 16th century, uh, when you have some of the first formal gardens. And I think probably the most famous maze in the world is the one at Hampton Court, um, laid out, certainly certainly used by Queen Elizabeth I, Henry VIII. Um, and it was all part of the very formal uh, Uh, sort of parading that they did. Um, Also it gave little odd corners and things that people could get up to things that they shouldn't be doing. But they, uh, and it's probably one of the oldest mazes in the country.
0: Little odd corners in the maze to do things you shouldn't be doing.
1: Yes, I was trying to be very delicate about that. So British. So British. Um, And and mazes became very fashionable in the 16th and into the 17th century. Um, But the history of mazes go back centuries. And then there was a renewal in the 19th and into the 20th century. And I think it was one of the best modern mazes. And, and one lady mentioned going to Leeds Castle. There's another really good maze there. Uh, it's relatively new, but there's one of a really good modern maze at um, Blenheim Palace itself. At Blenheim, yeah. Yeah, it was planted about 10 or 15 years ago.
0: I had a couple of emails, uh, Melanie in, in Corvallis, Oregon, and Dee in Columbia, South Carolina, and they're curious about uh, doing their garden sightseeing close to London. Uh, you talked about Hampton Court. That's an easy side trip from London with a great maze. Yeah, yeah. we got Kew Gardens, which has got to be one of the slam-dunk gardens in have I want to
1: mention Wisley, which is the headquarters, and this is the permanent headquarters, permanent gardens.
0: Wisley. Uh, how, do, how do you spell Wisley,
1: that? L e y. Okay. It's about um, 25 miles south of the centre of London. Um, right in the heart of London is the Chelsea Physic Garden. I mentioned the, the use of plants for medicinal purposes, mm. and that's in the Chelsea area, and that's a beautiful garden. Um, and there are other little odd gardens on the, uh, f- the fringes, the periphery of, of London. But you could get out by public transport to p- places like Leeds Castle, with its beautiful gardens, um home of Vita Sackville West. Um, She set out the gardens in the 1920s and 30s. Um, That's out in the Kent countryside, probably about 40 miles outside the center of London. But there is public transport that could take you out there uh, as part of a day trip.
0: And the mammoth garden experience has got to be Kew Gardens, doesn't
1: it? Oh, it is. I mean, it's one of the great, great gardens of the world.
0: I love going there by boat from uh, Big Ben, basically. And uh, you can take the tube there also though, right?
1: That's right. Uh, well, it's actually not so much the tube, I think. I think there's an overland train. train okay. But there is um, a rail network out to Kew. Um, I mean, for me, one of the, the great glory of Kew is actually the Palm House, one of the great glass houses. Uh, where they have these great tropical plants, uh, huge great lilies and things like that, and you you can walk up the walkways right at the very top of this canopy of these trees. It's like a humid,
0: plant. it's like a humid jungle experience right in London. It, it
1: is, yeah. And it's kept that way all year round, of course, because these plants come from all of these great tropical areas. Um, and um, on a cold winter's day, it's such a relief in in cold, windy London.
0: And architecturally, it's quite an astounding building because it's this iron, this industrial-age sort of structure like the Eiffel right. Tower or Crystal great Palace. Great
1: chunks of glass and cast iron.
0: And there's a, there's a, I think there's a lily garden there that Monet would sw- swim for.
1: That's right. Uh, I mean, it, it is best. The best time of the year is when gardens are really at the best in May, June, and July. But I've been there in the depths of winter. Uh, it's open virtually all year round. And, of course, in the autumn, um, with all the great sort of landscaped areas, You've got some great specimen trees. So the autumn colours can be absolutely marvellous. And, and again, there are telephone lines and information that will tell you what's in flower and whether the trees are of
0: the best colour. And Q, just, Q does things with gusto. I mean, they've got a. what is It's the Royal. What, it's some organisation that is just in love with the botany that, that runs this thing,
1: right? Well, it's the Royal Botanic Gardens. Uh, it is like the National Collection. Britain's very, very good about having national collections. We have national collections. There are literally national collections that are looked after and grown by individuals. It might be the national collection of daffodils or snowdrops or hostas or anything else like this. Um, and so they're kept for the future. And the Royal Botanic Gardens preserve seeds and plants right. for future use.
0: And there's this enthusiasm for learning and gaining an appreciation that you pick up That's as right. a tourist when you go to Kew. Hey, we all know that uh, in Britain there's there's no bad weather, just inappropriate clothing, Right. And uh, you're you're likely to get rain any time, but you can enjoy gardens rain or shine, I would think.
1: Well, I mean, Britain isn't always as wet, say, somewhere like the northwest of, 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 uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest. Um, But we do have a fair share of rain, and and again, it depends where you are in Britain.
0: But you've got a very...
1: It's it's no barrier to enjoying
0: gardens. It makes your gardens better, because I think you've got remarkably even temperature, and then this uh, kind of drizzle that just is always misting the water, the the plants.
1: perfect ground conditions for gardening. It's such a temperate climate that it is perfect for gardens. And in fact, if Britain, certainly in southern England, if uh, southern England goes more than a few weeks without rain, it's almost classed as a drought.
0: Now, is there any concern about global warming or climate change in England?
1: Well, I I think it's affecting all parts of the world, isn't it? Um, Already there are changes being noticed in plants adapting to the new conditions. Um, The winters are becoming drier. Uh, the, The weather patterns at certain times of the year are changing. We're getting uh, animals and birds moving into Britain that weren't there 20, 30 years ago, and and certainly some plants are already beginning to suffer.
0: So garden uh, aficionados in Britain are noticing that there's actually different conditions now?
1: Oh, definitely. So what you're going to be
0: looking at in the area of flora and fauna will be changing gradually?
1: Um, I mean, we're looking at very long-term changes. Um, I mean, if you're visiting in the next 10 or 15, 20 years, I'm not sure you'll notice any change. And gardeners do adapt Plants to new conditions uh, with selective breeding and everything else. So, uh, I, in, in formal gardens, I'm not sure that you'll notice any great change. I think the change is going to come in, in this sort of um, native fauna and flora. Okay.
6: Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground. Inch by inch, row by row Someone bless these seeds I sow Someone warm them from below Till the rain comes tumbling down Well then we
0: There's plenty more to discover about English gardens coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're surveying the amazing variety of gardens in England. While it's famed for its tradition of colorful informal gardens, England also has some of the world's most amazing formal gardens. Our guest from southern England is Roy Nichols. Roy leads tours of English gardens each summer, and he's here to answer your questions as you include garden sightseeing in your plans for a trip to the U.K. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Toll-free from anywhere in North America. And we invite your comments by email. Send them to radio at ricksteves.com. All right, uh, let's talk to Sherry in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Sherry, hi.
3: Hi, Rick. This is nice to talk to you. Well, Thanks for your help all these years with our travels.
0: It's great to talk to you. What you Got any questions or comments for Roy?
3: I guess my comments about traveling in England with gardens is that one can, can enjoy many other sites in England, and the gardens just fit in because they're everywhere. Um, for instance... I'm interested in cathedrals, and so the Bishop's Garden at Wells Cathedral is just a marvelous place. Or castles, for instance, we've been to Kildrummy Castle in Scotland and uh, Warwick Castle, and um, manor houses, villages, the Cotswold village gardens are just wonderful. So you can combine a lot of other sites along with garden going.
1: Sherry's right. Um, I mean, That is something that's often overlooked. Um, a lot of the National Trust houses, the vast majority, will have gardens, and they might only be small. Um, one of our favourite houses in, in England is Montacute, which is a, a marvellous Elizabethan manor house in uh, Somerset. And it's got the most delightful garden. Um, Sherry mentioned Warwick Castle. Um, what often gets overlooked is that it's got one of the most, uh, one of the best, um, recreated Victorian rose gardens
0: in the country. It's and people walk right amazing. by that. I mean, I've seen the hordes. They go right down into the castle yeah, and just on. past and, and the hedge. It's,
1: it's actually like a little sort of oasis of peace. Yeah.
3: Another favorite of mine was the bodenant Gardens in uh, Wales, and I'm sure that Mr. Nichols is aware of that.
2: Oh, yes.
3: One, one of the greatest state gardens with um, at least five levels, and each level has an entirely different style of garden. So... Mm. You know, if you're interested in garden design, it, it's wonderful. And, and another one that we really enjoyed is Bressingham Gardens. Uh, it was developed by Alan Bloom, who is a famous perennial gardener, and it's filled with perennial island beds. But my sons were traveling with us, uh, my husband and I, and they're very interested in trains. And this man, collected real steam trains, engines, and on one day a week um, allows the public to ride the trains. So that was a very special treat for the whole family. You know,
0: the English have all these, uh, don't take it wrong, Roy, eccentric little hobbies that they just get passionate <laughs> about. <And laughs> when Are you,
1: you... try to tell me something?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and when you stay in a B&B, invariably you bump into somebody who's got this incredible passion, and you're right there in the front row. It's just a wonderful thing
1: anything they start an association or a, or a club
0: I want to I want to echo sherry's sentiment about just thinking gardens when you're sightseeing in Britain I don't think I've ever paid to see a garden here on, in, in this uh, in the United States but when I'm in Britain or even on, I'm not that much of gardens on the continent but when I'm in Britain I'm aware where these great gardens are and I go there and they blow me away I was just in Bodnant Gardens uh, filming and uh, sherry mentioned that one in Northern Wales and it mm-hmm. was just a delight and I I don't know about you but do you think, uh, Sherry and, and Roy, it's worth trying to learn about these things by picking up a guided tour or the book or something like that? Or how do you understand what you're looking at to get the most out of the artistry that went into this um, garden?
1: Well, there's any any number of avenues of research you can do these days. Um,
0: I'm the talking National about Tra- on-site, on while you get there. Um, site well, site. you so, can
1: do it before you, you arrive. If you can get... Um, uh, details of say for the national trust houses national trust properties uh, a lot of the houses will as we've all mentioned they've got beautiful gardens and they'll actually tell you um if there's anything special about their particular gardens um i was mentioning the national garden scheme and that's often i think that's um online these days you can get details from it from the web
0: so what to look uh, for what's unique about that garden and also i know q does this and others also what is particularly good this month
1: yeah Probably the internet is probably one of the best resources there is these days. I,
0: I think Bowden Gardens actually has a recording. So before you get there, you you call their phone number and they tell you which flowers are in bloom uh, mm. this month.
1: There's a
3: book called The Good Gardens Guide that's published every every year. I think it's edited by Peter King, and it lists just you know hundreds of gardens in England. So if you're going to an area, you can check their map and see what gardens, and hmm. there'll be a brief description then of each uh, garden in that area.
1: I was also thinking of—we um, are all probably um, know the, the Blue Tour, Blue Tour guide right. to various countries. Well, they do a Gardens edition. Oh, that's English interesting. Gardens edition.
0: Yeah, we know. Let me just make sure that our listeners understand that there's this series of guidebooks that are quite encyclopedic, the Blue Guides, and a lot of times they're in highbrow academic kind of, uh, you know. Uh, uh, ancient sites and this sort of thing, but for Britain, they've actually got an addition for gardens, the Blue Guide to British Gardens, or something like that, and and that's really a a, a standard uh, source, isn't it? One
3: one other garden that we you, you might find unique is the Fishbourne uh, Roman Palace Garden, and that is on the site of an ancient Roman ruins, and they actually have tried to plant gardens that contained plants that the Romans grew. So there's just every many directions you can go for exploring gardens in, in England.
0: Sherry, thanks so much for your call.
3: You're welcome.
0: And happy travels in the future. Thanks for listening.
3: Thanks for talking with
0: me. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking English gardens with my friend and fellow tour guide, Roy Nichols, who's on the phone with us from uh, the south of England. We've got Susie on the line in Pleasant Ridge, Michigan. Hi, Susie. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call.
5: Thank you. Hi, Roy.
0: Hello, Susie.
5: Hi. I'm married to a a British man who works in the U.S., and I've been over to the U.K. several times. And what I have found, what you just mentioned, was visiting a lot of the National Trust properties was a handy way to learn about the history of not only Britain and the the houses, but to see some wonderful gardens.
0: Tell us more about the National Trust. How do you join that, and how would that apply to Americans, Roy, compared to the British Heritage Pass? Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, that, that that allows you into all sorts of different properties. It's not just the National Trust. The National Trust was started in the 19th century uh, by a group of concerned individuals that saw properties um, running into rack and ruin, and they were more concerned about um, houses and buildings at the time. But it's gone on over the decades, and now that they buy property... Um, from coastline through open moorland, forestry land, as well as buildings, historic buildings. And they're one of the largest landowners in Britain after the, the government.
5: Mm.
1: Um, but when it comes to uh, – and, and if you join the National Trust, um, whether you're British residents or whether you're coming from abroad, it's a marvellous way of getting free entry. Uh, you, you pay an annual fee. To, to see all these marvellous buildings. But if you're an American, there's a thing called the Royal Oak Foundation, um, and they have their own website, um, which will allow you a reciprocal entrance to um, properties in the U.S. Hmm. So you join in Britain, um, and you get a quarterly magazine, I think it is, um, entry to British properties and reciprocal entry to properties in the U.S.
0: So Americans could join that and be uh, reciprocal and join sites in Britain as well?
1: That's right. Yes, I think the the website is www.royal-oak.org and
0: yeah. that'll
1: give you more details and things.
0: royal-oak.org. All right. Susie, did you actually join the National Trust?
5: Yes, I joined it through the Royal Oak foundation and and actually on their website i think you can even you can purchase a lot of the books um you get a guidebook actually too uh, it's the same book that the brits get over there that shows you all the properties for all of the uk tells you when they're open um hmm. if there's special festivals when there's gardens um open and all that kind of thing if there's an extra fee for a special garden or not but um you can also buy that good garden guide that the, the gal before was right. talking
0: about So now, it must be nice when you're tooling around England to have the membership so almost any site of importance is part of the National Trust, and then you can just park and go in without worrying about the cost.
5: Exactly, and it's also U.S. tax-deductible.
0: Wow, to support British heritage. (laughs) Go figure. Hey, Susie, thanks for your call. Thank you. A lot of people, when they travel around Britain, they find these ruined abbeys. Uh, Henry VIII destroyed most of the great abbeys, right?
1: I mean, it's one of the terrible, great, terrible losses of of, of England. Um, the dissolution of the monasteries, 15, late 1530s, um, when his argument with the Pope and the Catholic faith um, basically meant that um, all of these uh, abbeys were closed down. The, the, the nuns, the, the priests, the, the, the monks were all pensioned off. And a lot of the buildings were sold off. The land was sold off. Some of them were turned into private homes. Um, places like Bewley and uh, other places like that. But the vast majority actually fell into ruin. Some have been kept up in, uh, as, and preserved. The ruins are preserved. Uh, some have been sort of restored to a certain smaller amount. But they're everywhere throughout Britain. And so you get these beautiful gardens. And then, in a way, it is carrying on the tradition of these, of these monasteries and uh, monastery gardens were famous in medieval times.
0: And to me, they're sort of evocative parks, not gardens as such, but in, in a strange way, you've got these ruin, the remains of these just completely ruined abbeys in lush public areas, and people can wander through there and enjoy the landscaping, enjoy an outdoor cafe, and also in, enjoy um, the, the sort of a reminder of the rich history that's everywhere you look in England.
1: Well, they're often very enclosed by um, walls. They had their own formal gardens.
0: Now, another tradition that the British have, and uh, you seem to hang on to, is this um, class society, and you've got these lords, you've even got your house of lords, and uh, people who are just got families that are, like, blue-blooded. Um, uh, and and now, with that not quite fitting the, the modern 21st-century economic mold, you've got these eccentric lords that are actually impoverished, that have huge manor houses with glorious gardens that don't have enough money to even keep them up in a lot of cases.
1: Well, many of them disappeared after the Second World War when prices rose. There was rationing, um, there were punitive taxes from a government trying to restore the fortunes of a country um, beggared by two world wars. And and so a lot of the big landowners suffered because there were things like death duties, extra taxes that were added on when Lord so-and-so died. Um, And so the estate as a whole was taxed quite punitively. Um, and it was a way of raising money for the Exchequer to try and uh, say rebuild Britain. Well, I mean these are beautiful buildings, and a lot are seen, and we should see them almost as national treasures. Um, but they are um, wealthy in the in the in the sort of standard sense, but nonetheless they're responsible for these huge estates, big buildings. Um, and I remember, I think it was Woburn Abbey in the 1960s was one of the first stately homes to open to the public, and caused absolute scandal at the time, opening the doors to the hoi polloi, anybody to come through the doors if they paid their two pounds, whatever it was in those days, probably 20 shillings.
0: Yeah, but even, uh, even the Queen does that now, doesn't she?
1: Well, exactly, yes. After the, the fire at um, at um, Windsor, um, she started opening up Buckingham Palace, uh, when was it, about 10 years ago? Um, and it's been very successful. To and rebuild it,
0: after the fire of her other palace, huh?
1: That's right. It was Million fifty million pounds. Uh, they had to raise to do a lot of the rebuilding of Windsor.
0: And the British people said, "You know, you can live like you're, you're okay. You're a queen, but we're not going to pay for the rebuilding of your palace. You're going to have to become a tourist attraction."
1: Well, it, it is forgotten. A lot of the royal palaces are not owned by the Queen because they are um, the, the royal estates. Um, but it was, I think, it was George the Third of fond memory that actually turned over all the royal palaces to the British Exchequer in in return for what they call the civil list which is a sum of money given to the royal family and the main members of the royal family every year to maintain these buildings. But they're not owned by the Queen at all. They're not uh, private in that sense. But a lot of these large estates are run these days as businesses. Uh, We've both been to places like Benham lots of times. Mm -hmm. And there, the Duke of Marlborough, Runs the estate as a business to maintain this beautiful building, and it is important that we we do support them.
0: Because uh, I know I know Lord Needpath, N-E-I-D-P-A-T-H, who has a um, incredible manor house in the Cotswold mm. villages. What's what's the manor house? What's the town there? It's Stanton House, yeah. Stanton House, that's right in the Cotswolds. And he opens his house a couple times a month, and <laughs> you've got the peasants out there that uh, he that owe him rent still that sit there at the gate and take the five pounds, and people can go in and. and the Lord is there with his patched elbows and his eccentric uh, sort of lifestyle, and he welcomes people into his home just because he's got to earn a few extra pounds to pay his taxes. It,
1: it, it's to our benefits and to their benefit as well.
0: Don't a lot of these people hire out um, the managing of their palaces uh, to like um, amusement companies almost to turn them into tourist attractions? Well,
1: some of them have become that. Um, Some of them have... I I know places like Benham, they they have weddings there, they have show-jumping events, they have car events, they have rallies, all sorts of things.
0: Doesn't Madame Tussauds actually run Warwick Castle?
1: Well, the the last um, Earl of Warwick, I think it was about 15 years ago, actually sold off the estate completely. They don't um, lease it or rent it anyway. They actually own it lock, stock and barrel. I think he lives in an apartment in Paris nowadays. He wasn't really interested in in keeping up and maintaining.
0: And it's big Warwick business. Castle. I mean, you go to work Castle, you got guys with whistles directing traffic, and you've got oh, uh, cost- they
1: have. Uh, you you mentioned that some of the top. Re- top um, tourist attraction in Britain. I think Warwick was one of those, isn't and, it?
0: And it costs $20, $25 to get in these days.
1: I know, it's expensive. But I have to say, as expensive as it is, it's worth every penny. It's a great tourist attraction. It's a great...
0: Yeah, I think it's One the of best. the best
1: castles of Europe, I think.
0: I think it's the best single castle experience in Britain, really. They've made it a sort of a, a Knott's farm of medieval Britain. I mean, you've got your dungeon, you've got your Madame Tussaud's garden party, you've got your... Um, you know, all of your armor and your armory and you've got your, your keep and you've got your guys in, in shining armor that are actually fighting in the courtyard?
1: Oh, it's a great day's entertainment and anybody coming from the States with a family, children of any age, I, I can't think of anything that I would suggest that would be that as family entertainment. It's a great day.
0: It's a, it's a day. It's not just a visit to a castle because you hang around till 2 o'clock and you can see the catapult in action.
1: That's right, and there's archery demonstrations, as you say, there's the jousting that goes on, there's cookery demonstrations. There's all different things that go on at different times of the year.
0: I guess that's a good travel tip, is when you're confronted with a steep admission price, look at the entryway for the schedule of events, and you'll realize that there's a lot of entertainment that goes along with this experience. And, Roy, if we want to, uh, we can join the British Heritage Pass, or we can buy this pass, right?
1: Yeah, the Heritage Pass is different from um, the National Trust membership, and, and the Heritage Pass is usually... Um, allows you entry to um, privately-owned establishment, privately-owned stately homes. really almost like a cooperative. They come together, uh, and you buy a pass, and it gives you unlimited entry to all of these properties within that list of properties.
0: And if you're going to do a lot of sightseeing and you have an appetite for these kind of uh, countryside, palace, mansion, manor house kind of attractions, it can save you lots of money.
1: It can save you an absolute small fortune, yeah, certainly.
0: I've been talking with Roy Nichols, a good friend of mine who's a fellow tour guide and he lives in the south of England and he leads tours through Great English Gardens. Roy, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, it's
1: been a pleasure again, Rick. Thank you very much.
0: Okay. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Are
1: you going to
6: Scarborough Fair? Sage and Remember me to one who lives there once was a true love of mine, she once was a true love of mine, tell her to plough me an acre of land, past the sage rosemary and time, between the sea and the salt sea's and
4: she shall be
6: love
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at Ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Sonia Grosset and Rachel Unk, with technical support from John Weist and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick
0: Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.